Welcome to Reframe and Reset Your Career, a podcast to help if you're looking for a job, feeling stuck in your career, or just trying to rediscover your why. I am your host, Harsha Boralesa, and this podcast came from my passion for neuroscience and psychology and their interaction with career and personal development. I will be interviewing recognized experts and successful professionals and asking them to share the insights and strategies that have helped their careers thrive. Implementing change is not easy and does take time, but I do hope that their stories will inspire you on your path to greater success and fulfillment in your career. Here are some highlights of today's episode. Anything you can do that puts you back in charge, that's really critical so that you just don't suffer the mental effects of feeling powerless. If you have a conversation that doesn't go well, it doesn't mean you are a good or bad person. It is the nature of human relationships that we're going to have conflict. We're going to have disagreements. Diverse teams tend to be more creative when problem solving and partly because they don't presume they're going to agree. Welcome to episode 73 of the Reframe and Reset Your Career podcast. Our guest today is Amy E. Gallo. Before we begin, I wanted to thank all the listeners of the podcast and YouTube channel for their support. We have now been downloaded in 113 countries, the latest being Slovenia. Please note that in this episode, we may touch on mental health and wellness topics purely in general terms. If you have specific issues or concerns, please contact a suitable professional. Now back to the show. Amy is a workplace expert who writes and speaks about gender, interpersonal dynamics, difficult conversations, feedback, and effective communication. She is the author of Getting Along and the HBR Guide to Dealing with Conflict. For the past three years, Amy has co-hosted HBR's popular Women at Work podcast, which examines the struggles and successes of women in the workplace. She is frequently sought out by media outlets for her perspectives on workplace dynamics, conflict, and difficult conversations. Her advice has been featured in the New York Times, Fast Company, Marketplace, and the Austin American Statesman, as well as on WNYC, the BBC, and the ABC. Welcome, Amy. Thank you so much, Arsha. I'm so happy to be here. No, it's it's my pleasure and my honor to have you here, Amy. And just a, a small story about how we actually met in person. So we were both attending uh, Thinkers 50, and obviously you were on the radar list, I think, last year. Is that, is that right, uh, Amy? Yeah, 2023. Yep. And I was nom- my, and Getting Along was nominated for the Talent Award this oh, year right. as well, last year, yeah. Fantastic. And I, I happened to see Amy speaking to somebody that I knew. And I felt so bad, but I thought, look, I, I may not have another chance to, to see her. So I went straight for her at the coffee coffee time and had a quick chat with her. And from that, this interview has come about. And I actually referenced it. It was Tony Martinetti, I think, you were speaking to me. Yeah, and I actually, right. yeah, and he's a great guy. And I actually referenced um, it on the podcast I had with Tony a, a few months ago. So I think mm. it always sh- shows that if you're um, hopefully courteous and go up to people and look, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but you never know. Yeah, no. And I'm so glad you said hello, because I know you had reached out about having me on the podcast and hadn't had much luck because it had been a busy year with book launch and all that. But once I have a face, it's so much easier to say, okay, yeah, let's do this. Let's make it happen. And we did. So here we are. I love it. And and the other great thing, Amy, I think, is that you took this sabbatical last summer, which I think is amazing because it does show that sometimes we're just working so hard and obviously with a book and, you know, having to meet so many people, it just does tire you out. And it does show that self-care is so important. Yeah. And I'm an introvert. So the, the book launch, 
you know, my books came out five years apart. Asian Bear Guide to Dealing with Complex came out in 2017. Getting Along came out in 2022. And the the difference in the what's required of an author to launch a book during that time period, it was, it was just huge. And so I wasn't really emotionally prepared for how much I'd have to be out there, my face, talking about myself, talking about my relationship to conflict and difficult people. And so, you know, come three months into launch, I was like, when do I get a break? And like you said, I took three months off last summer and it was just, I can't recommend it enough if you're in a p- the position to do that. It gave me the much needed sort of perspective, rest, self-care I needed to sort of keep going because I'm in a, in a wonderful uh, spot in that people are still like you, really interested in talking about the book and my work. And so none of that went away. When I took my time off, I came back to the busyness, but it was, but I felt more rested. Fantastic. So um, Amy, as as I mentioned, I'm a big fan of the arts. So is there a performer song, book or film, which you'd like to share with us? This is such an interesting question. And I was like, can we talk about like 14 different things? (laughs) But I'm going to, I will just choose one. The, 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 actually it's a movie that comes to mind um, that I watched maybe two months ago called Past Lives. It stars Greta oh, Lee. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. Love yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, she didn't get nominated for an Oscar. So it's been a big buzz that she wasn't. And I was shocked. I remember as soon as it ended, I turned to my husband and I was like, that's, that is an Oscar winning performance. But what I loved about the movie is it's really about relationships over lifetimes and how they shape us and who, it, how we define our identity and, how they sort of fall apart and can be repaired or reconnected and how they affect our other relationships. Like I just felt it was just a beautiful movie. It was slow. It was quiet, but it just had such a deep impact on me. No, I, I love that choice. And then, then the whole idea I think about there are no sort of villains. It, it, it is what it is. And I think sometimes in films, exactly. they try to paint you know uh, the husband or the wife as bad people, but it's yes. just life, and they're they're a messy things. And actually, yeah. uh, uh, some of my favorite films are the Before uh, Sunset Sunrise trilogy, mm. um, which yes. is sort of similar about just looking at a relationship without a big dramatic thing. So yeah, no, I love I love that choice. And then one yeah. other funny thing, Amy, is that um, I'm a big Talking Heads fan, and I realized that they mm. went to RISD, which is just near where you are, isn't yes. it? Yeah, yes, it's actually where my husband works. Oh, wow. um, okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. and it's funny. You so say he's an that artist, because- is he? No, he's actually a therapist. My poor daughter. She's my poor daughter's the 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 child of a therapist and a conflict expert. You can imagine how much we talk about feelings in our house. But she um, but it's funny you say that because I was listening this morning to David Burns um America Utopia. Oh, okay. Um, which is, you know, he did this play on Broadway. He did lots of places, but it ended up on Broadway, and that's where I saw it. And the soundtrack to it is just beautiful. It's a beautiful performance. You don't even have to see the performance to appreciate it by just listening to it. So it's funny that you you brought that up. No. You know, yeah, lo- love love talking heads. Um, but yeah. anyway, back back to the start. You studied <laughs> sociology at Yale. Uh, was yes. there any was there any particular strategy behind that? Oh gosh, do do eighteen year olds ever have strategies? <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I don't. I mean, there was in that. I had taken a few, and actually, you know what? I should step back. There was strategy to it. And it's a strategy I learned there that I have sort of carried throughout my career, which is that I had taken a course with a particular professor named Deborah Minkoff, a sociology course. And I loved Professor Minkoff's course. I loved working with her. And I thought, okay, 
I'm I I'm not sure what topic I consider psychology. I consider political science, right? I'm not sure what major is the right major for me, but at least I know I like to be around these people. And so I thought, okay, how do I? And I loved the sociology department. It wasn't just Deborah. There were lots of wonderful professors there. And I thought, okay, if I enjoy being around these people, why not major in it? The other thing, it was a, a relatively small department, so it also allowed me to do a lot of independent study, which is something I was also interested in. You know, it led to my senior thesis, which was about organizations, actually American organizations that were doing HIV prevention work in Moscow. And so as I sort of draw the threads of my career, a lot of it is about how organizations and how people function within organizations um, in ways that are productive and achieve a goal that they're really interested in achieving. No, I just love that. And I think that point you make about sort of drawing threads together, because sometimes when you're going forward in life, you can't really see where the connections are. But it's when you look back and it's like Steve Jobs thing about you know, connecting the dots. Um, so I think that's very interesting for our, our listeners about you may not know exactly where you're going, but sometimes you can weave these things together into interesting threads. Yes. Absolutely. And sometimes you just have to follow the good people because it may not be the exact right topic, but good people do good work. For me, that was the professors and even the admin in that department. I wish I remembered her name. She was just lovely. And that, and I was like, okay, I can imagine coming to this, this building every day of my the rest of my college career. Why not do it? Yeah, fantastic. So I saw that after that, you worked for a number of years as a consulting firm. So how did you find the world of management consulting? Well, I fell into consulting. So as I mentioned, my senior thesis was about HIV prevention. I went and worked for two different HIV prevention organizations, one in Moscow and then one in San Francisco. And I loved that work. And then for a bunch of family reasons, I ended up moving back to the East Coast here in the US to New York. And I knew with the student loans I had, with the cost of living in New York, I could not, I wasn't going to be able to survive on a nonprofit yeah. salary. And so- a friend of a friend had started this firm, Cats and Back Partners. And I, they're like, do you want to interview there? I was like, sure, what's consulting? Right. And and to, to their credit, they hired me despite, I, I honestly, and this sounds like an exaggeration, but it is absolutely true. I couldn't define revenue and cost for you at that time. Right. <laughs> like I really knew nothing. I had jeans. Like I didn't have a suit, like nothing. But they hired me. They took a written, and, and the partner, Nico, who's, who became a mentor and um, is just a, a wonderful person, but he, he told me at the time when they're hiring me, he goes, we're really conflicted about you. Like there are a lot of us who think we should not hire you. And there's a lot of us who think we should. So we're going to take the risk and just see how it goes. And it worked out. I didn't love consult. I loved Cats and Back Partners. It was a great firm. Again, surrounded myself with people I really enjoyed being around. I thrived around. Consulting itself really wasn't for me. I think partly because as an introvert, it was just a lot of performance that I didn't love. But you know, I stuck with, I, I was there full-time for two years. I then left New York, but stayed, I freelanced with them for quite a long time. Um, and I, some of I have lifelong friendships with people I worked with there. So um, I have, I have a lot of respect for consultants because I think they do a lot of important work, but it, it, in the end, at the end of the day, it wasn't, it wasn't the right fit for me long-term. And I think that there are two really interesting points there. I think, firstly, the idea of building relationships and connections with these people, because clearly you did something to make 
them see something in you, but also I think playing to your strengths. I think you realize that, okay, there's good money, but this is really not, you know, my uh, sweet spot. This is not my lane. So I think having the ability to step back and say, okay, what is my lane? What is my sweet spot? Yeah. I mean, absolutely. And I think one of the other things I learned in that job and, and actually Nico, the, one of the partners really sort of, he, he, sort of framed it for me when I left and I went freelance. He said, you know, you're someone who is much more suited to a portfolio career than to have a single career. And at the time I was like, I'm not sure what that means, but it sounds right. And since then, so that that was 20 years ago, right? Since then I've, it's actually more than 20 years ago, believe it or not. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to say exactly the number of years, but... Um, so you, but, you're obviously a gifted child, Amy. <laughs> that's right. That's good. But it, but I did, have had a portfolio career, right? I've had, I have many, I wear many hats at the same time. I'm an author. Yeah. I, um, you know, I'm a contributing editor at HBR. I do some coaching. I, like there, it's, and it's, I thrive when, when that's the case. And I think that was something that was a lesson I took also from that was that as much as I loved the firm and I thought it was just an amazing institution full of wonderful, intelligent, caring people, it is not for me. And I know for a lot of people, that's what they thrive on, right? But for me, it wasn't. Fantastic. So I, when I was doing a, uh, some research on you, I came across your TED talk, The Gift of Conflict, mm-hmm. which, which I yeah. loved. And, and I love that message about you know, avoiding conflict sometimes is often much worse than just facing up to it and i love the way you sort of break it down into firstly looking at it from the other person's perspective figuring out your own goal and not taking things personally um i mean yeah. do you just want to uh, share a few thoughts with our listeners because i think it was you know fantastic and and you were very funny amy as well that's oh, another reason you. for people to to watch it that it, it's not you. just dry facts you there's some yeah. good jokes in there <laughs> I do. I do, I do like a good joke. <laughs> there, there is no doubt about that. Yeah, I actually tell the story at the beginning of that talk, which is happened at the consulting firm. It's funny for you to make that quick that connection because I talked about how I sent an email to a client that I meant to send to my colleague because I was afraid to have this conflict with a client and push back and tell them I didn't agree with the way they were doing this project. And it was actually Nico, that the partner at that firm, who I had to go fess up when I said, I sent this sort of rude, actually not sort of, very rude email to a client. And I really hoped he would fire me because I was like, well, then I'll be done. I won't have to, you know, and he, and he said, go apologize. And it was just such a good lesson because she, her reaction, the most generous reaction when I showed up at her office, she just said, why didn't you tell me? And I was, just, I was like, oh my gosh, yes. Why didn't I just tell you I thought the project wasn't going in the right direction or I thought, you know, the wrong people were involved? Like, why didn't I just say that? Which would have, let's be fair, been uncomfortable, but far less uncomfortable than having to apologize for an email where I used some really not nice words <laughs> to describe her. So, you know, I think it was a, it was a tough lesson for me but I did, you know, and I think the the sort of points I make in that talk is and something I do in all my speaking is really trying to, like, what are you trying to achieve, right? Like, what are you actually, what's your goal here? Remember that that goal isn't about you. Like, so even if I have a difficult conversation, I mean, I coach my teenage daughter on this all the time of like, if you have a conversation that doesn't go well, it doesn't mean you are a good or bad person. It is the nature of human 
relationships, that we're going to have conflict, we're going to have disagreements. It's not always going to be perfect. And that's okay. Right. And then, and it's so many of us, I think it is, I think it's actually gotten worse, even since I've done that talk, which is, we are just told that conflict is has to be heated and mean, and we conflate it with war and with fracturing of relationships. And, and I, I would encourage your listeners, like right now, like three, choose the three people in your life who you feel closest to, who you trust, who you feel the worst with. My guess is you have conflict with them, right? This is part of being in relationship with other people. And so we have to learn how to embrace it as something that gives us some positive benefits rather than something that should be avoided at all costs. Yeah, and, and I think that that whole point about um, if you choose people who are exactly like you, I mean, how boring would that, you know, you don't want to be in a relationship with yourself or only have friends who are exactly like you. Um, you know, that would be quite sort of narcissistic in a way. So you really do need to have different perspectives. And actually, it's that conflict which helps you grow in a way, isn't it? Yeah. And actually, it, it reminds me of some some research that's done you know, a lot of there's been a lot of research on diverse teams versus homogeneous teams. And one of my favorite findings is that diverse teams tend to be more creative when problem solving, and partly because they don't presume they're going to agree, right? We do, we often make these assumptions when someone looks like us, has a similar background, is, you know, maybe the same gender, maybe went to the same school, sure. that we're going to see eye to eye. And when there's visible diversity, we presume, oh, wow, okay, we'll probably disagree about some things. And that that inherently makes us more creative because we're in, we know we're going to have to push back. We know we're going to have to be able to articulate our ideas more clearly. Um, you know, we know that we're going to have to come to a resolution from differing viewpoints. And so absolutely, how boring would it be to be married to yourself, right? <laughs> to be, work with people who look exactly like you, you know, and, and think exactly like you. And I think sometimes we think we want that because it feels smooth, but it doesn't result in good and, and sort of positive outcomes. And I think that point you make about assumptions is really important because sometimes we do make these assumptions about people or projects, and it could be that you end up halfway into the project and you've made a massive assumption right at the beginning, purely because you just assume it is, and then you've wasted massive amounts of time. And I think you know, before any sort of discussion or big big project, you really do need to be on the same page. And, and I suppose that's a function of a good leader and leadership and just making mm -hmm. sure you are all going in the right direction with the same assumptions. Yeah. And and getting on that same page is going to re require some conflict, right? I mean, I think it's one of the most critical skills. There was actually a, a, a Gartner study that was done, I think it was just last year, so December last year, um, just about workplace trends for 2024. And one of the biggest ones they identified, I think they, it's nine total, and one of the nine was the need for managers to get good at conflict. Because it's it is critical that managers know how to facilitate tough discussions, especially given the amount of uncertainty we all work under, the amount of sort of busyness we're up against, just differing political views that come into the the workplace. Right, we're going to have managers and leaders need to get comfortable with disagreements and need to be be able to have the skills to take disagreements, different perspectives, dissent, debate, and move that forward to your point so you can be on the same page as you go into an important project or as you try to meet a critical deadline. 
I know, lo- love all those points. So, Amy, now moving on to your book, which I love, love mm-hmm. reading. So why did you decide to write it? And can you give a brief overview for our listeners? Sure. Getting Along came out in September 2022. And it was a long time in the making, to be honest. When my first book, The HBR Guide to Dealing with Conflict, came out, you know, that's a very, it's a very quick read. It's a, it's a less than 200 page book. It's a very straightforward approach to dealing with conflict. And what I was noticing though, is that when I would do talks and workshops based on that book, is that people would come up and afterwards and say, these frameworks are helpful. These tools are great, but I have this one coworker, right? And they would sort of (laughs) describe someone who defied all of the sort of general advice about how to deal with conflict and disagreement. And I kept listening to these stories and I was like, yeah, I can, I can see how you're stuck, right? I can see how what I just shared would not help here. I really wanted to write a book for those people, you know, and, and what I noticed is there were starting to be patterns, right? There was the one I heard about all the time, right? Those passive aggressive coworker, or I heard about people who were being, you know, having credit stolen from them or, you know, someone who was dishonest with them or, a boss who was super micromanaging, you know, I would hear all of these stories and I started to connect the patterns. And so the book, it took shape as, you know, there's a first few chapters just talking about the importance of relationships at work. It's sad that we still have to convince people of that, but but it's true. There's lots of, there's lots of science to back it up. But then the main part of the book is I go into eight different archetypes and they're really sort of personality traits or patterns of behavior that you might encounter in your coworkers at work. And I try to sort of explain what would cause that behavior, what's a rational reason for it, what tactics can you use to try to change the dynamic between you and someone who displays this behavior, um, and you know, also including sample language. And then there's some chapters at the end, of course, about how to protect yourself, because sometimes despite your best efforts, it's not going to work. Um, so I'll talk about sort of tactics that that usually fail, what you can do to protect yourself and, and your career. Now, now, I love that point you make about uh, your relationships, because it is just so much easier to work with somebody and work on a project with somebody if you like them or you, know, you have things in common. Um, and, and say with you know, doing these podcasts, um, not that I'm trying to get people exactly the same as me, but if you right. do have some sort of chemistry and relationship, it, it doesn't feel like work. It's just a fun conversation mm-hmm. between two people. So you know, I just, yeah. just love that point. And and you know, moving on to these archetypes, I just I think that's such a helpful way to break it down, because mm. then you can say, okay, uh, this is what I'm encountering with whoever, and then yeah. these are the types of you know, because you're making it fairly specific to a, an archetype. Um, and yeah. I love that this this the I suppose the most common I think I've heard you say is the passive aggressive. Is is that right? Yeah. Um, so, it's the one I hear. It's the yeah, one yeah. I hear about the most by by far, right? How, and I can always yeah. get whenever I do a talk. I can, if I haven't addressed passive aggressive behavior in the talk, I can always say the first, sometime in the first three questions, someone's going to say, how do I deal with someone who's being passive aggressive? And it happens, right? It happens a lot. I mean, who among us hasn't behaved passive aggressively? Yeah. I'm going to talk about passive, but I wanted, I actually want to go back to, because you mentioned the, the relationships and how it's sort of yeah. knowing someone, I, there, there's just a great piece of research that was done by a group of professors um, at Rutgers who showed actually that people who consider themselves best friends at work or consider themselves to have a best friend yeah. at work actually get higher performance ratings, right? So I think we often think of relationships as like 
They make work easier. They make it fun, but they actually make us better at our job, right? And so I think that's one of the things that's when we when we think about investing in our relationships at work, especially trying to invest in the challenging ones. It's the payoff is huge. That's I just want to say. But should we go into passive aggressive? Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Sorry, I had to, I had to share that. I do love that. No, that we 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 love research, so you know it's not just our opinions. <laughs> <It's good laughs> that's that's right. That's right. Well, and I will say that's one of the things that was so important to me because obviously people have written books about difficult people, about challenging relationships, but I really, really wanted to write a book that was evidence based. And I knew because of my role as a contributing editor at HBR, I knew there was advice that was coming out of this research about how to deal with these specific patterns. And so that was sort of the the connective tissue between the my idea for this book and then the and what ended up being the end product. Um, but passive aggressive, it was the first chapter I ever wrote. It was the one I was like, this has to this, this has to be good because people really need help with this. And, you know, as I said, I sort of try to describe in in the book, what does the behavior look like? I think we can all describe what passive aggressive behavior looks like. But, you know, someone who says one thing in a meeting and then does something else right after someone who says, oh, no, I'm fine, when you can tell they're really upset, right? Or um, they promise to send an email and they don't send it, you know, just a lot of, and, and what's interesting about passive aggressive, the term actually was created in, it was, I think, World War One in by the, in the US military to describe soldiers who were non-compliant with, with their superior's orders. It then has a sort of, you know, illustrious history in terms of being a formal diagnosis in psychology and then not. I think we use it very sort of, you know, anecdotally now. And I think sometimes we're really loose with it. But generally, you know, again, no one is above it. And what causes it often is fear, right? So a fear of rejection. I don't want to be straightforward with this person because they'll reject me. A fear of conflict, right? This might result in a fight. You could say I was quite passive aggressive when I sent that email um, to my client, right? And I can probably name five times I've been passive aggressive in my family, you know, in this month. So we all do it. But it's also... That fear ends up, we sort of don't, the basic idea is that we don't feel comfortable expressing our thoughts and ideas directly. And so we find indirect ways to express them. The problem is it leaves that other person, let's say you, on the other end guessing of like, what's going on, right? This is so, and it's so incredibly frustrating. So then the question, of course, is what do you do? Um, you know, number one, I hope I don't have to say this, but do not say you're being really passive aggressive, right? Because no one, no one comes home at the end of the day and says, wow, I was so passive aggressive at work. Like no one identifies with that, that label and you telling them they're being that way I, is likely to spark more fear on their behalf, probably more passive aggressive behavior. But instead, I think you really want to try to focus on what's the underlying message and, you know, sometimes with passive aggressive folks, it's like, you know, it's wrapped in this sort of snarky comment or, you know, they might use a specific tone or they might just sort of shut down. And I think you have to do a little bit of investigative work of saying, like, what is it they're actually trying to say? And can you do what Heidi Grant, who's a, a social psychologist, describes as hypothesis testing. So let's say you tell me, no, you're fine with the with the way this strategy is going. Nope, totally good. Yep, all good. I'll, I'm on board. But I can tell 
that there's a little bit of like heat on, in those comments or your body language is saying something else is I could test that hypothesis and say, you know, Harsha, I hear what you're saying, but I get the sense that you have a few concerns. I really need to hear those before we move forward. You know, what's a great, what, you know, when would be a good time to talk through those concerns, right? Like just trying to sort of make it easy for them to express. And it's possible. And, and I've seen this happen all the time that people are like, nope, it's fine, right? And won't engage. But the good thing is by doing this hypothesis testing, you've shown them that you're paying attention and you're not going to just sort of take their passive aggressive reaction as the final say. You're going to continue to ask them about what, what's going on. Now, if they are the, if it's the kind of passive aggressive where they say they'll do something in a meeting and then never follow up, right? That's something you might address directly where you could say, you know, hey, you said you would do that. It didn't come. What's going on? Right? Okay. Could we do it by this date? Right? And then you sort of have to keep following up. It's frustrating. It takes a lot of work on your part. That work, I think, will pay off in terms of a more straightforward relationship with that person. And also you can feel good about how you behaved because one of the temptations is when someone's passive aggressive is just to feed it right back to them, right? And <laughs> just retaliate. And so, it and that's not good. Like you don't, I don't feel good at the end of the day where I'm like, oh, wow. Like I treated their childish behavior by even a, being a, more of a child, right? Like I don't, I want to feel good that I did what I could to make that relationship or that interaction positive. Yeah, and I like the point you make about taking the heat out of it because clearly this sort of you know one-upping somebody is not going to end in a good place at all. So it's much better to you know try and take it offline, try and just bring it down, uh, and and this whole idea of trying to really investigate what is the underlying issue, um, and mm -hmm. and at least if you're trying to talk to them. Um, that's a start, isn't it, um, Amy, yeah. um, to sort of take the heat down and and be sensible about the whole thing and just not be childish. So, yeah, I lo love that. Well, and also think about, like, are there ways you maybe have encouraged them to be faster? I mean, for a lot of people, it's a learned behavior. Like they, you know, often traces back to childhood or um, their young adult years where the, it's it was an effective tool for them to get what they needed in certain circumstances. But for sometimes I've I've talked to people who behave really passive aggressively with someone like usually someone senior and they're like they cannot be disagreed with right they don't take feedback well they fly off the handle if you if you push back well yeah so you need to find other ways to express your opinion if that's the case so if you are in a position where you're dealing with someone who's passive aggressive you really need to ask yourself is there a way that I've set this dynamic up where I've caused them to try to find other ways to express their thoughts and feelings rather than being direct? So it's almost looking within yourself and just seeing, have I done something to spark this type of behavior? Am I a boss who basically likes to yeah. hear my own opinion fed back to me? That's not That's a good right. starting place. Yeah, no, I, I, I just right. love that. And actually, now moving on to our boss, the insecure mm. boss, because I, I love yeah. that, you know, that that sort of archetype. And I'm sure many of us have had, you know, difficult bosses or bosses who micromanage or just, you know, they're just a nightmare. Um, what yeah. what are your thoughts on that, Amy? Yeah. Well, it's funny. I originally had the passive aggressive peer as the first chapter, and um, my editor at HBR Press, Jeff Kehoe, who's just a lovely, lovely person, brilliant editor, he was like, "No, insecure boss has to go first. Like, this will be the chapter people are looking for." So, 
insecure boss, uh, you know, one of the main traits is they often micromanage because they don't trust. They're not, they're, they're afraid of how they'll appear. They often, you know, have trouble making decisions or sticking to one. They might block your ability to interact with other people in the organization. And, and usually it's all about this sense of like, how do they come, how do they appear, right? How do they appear to you as the person they manage? How do they appear to the rest of the organization? And they're just really, really unsure of themselves. You know, let's be honest, insecurity is normal. There's actually a very apt term for someone who has no insecurity and it's a psychopath, right? So <laughs> you you want to have some self-doubt, right? It is. And so you, you know, have to remember that self-doubt is normal. Um, I think the, the challenge is, especially when someone's higher than us in the organization or more accomplished than us or has a better title, we expect like, why would you be insecure? You've got the money, you, you've got the title, you've got the position, what's going on? And the, and the reality is research shows that the more senior folks get, especially if there's a competence gap, yeah. they tend to be more insecure. So it's not, again, I, it, I don't know if this helps, but it's just so, super normal to work with someone who might have a sense of insecurity. And unfortunately, the, what the research shows around the advice is something I don't love to give <laughs> as, as sort of guidance, but it's been shown to work. And I, and not just like I've had experience with it, with it, which has been shown to work, which is flattery, right? Genuine flattery. Because you think about it, their ego, right? They're worried. What do people think of me? What do people think of me? The more you can calm that ego, what, what's called in psychology, ego defensiveness, the more likely they are to stop micromanaging, to listen to your input, to allow you to interact with other people in the organization. So you have to sort of help calm that ego. Now, is it your job as this the person being managed to help your boss as the ego? No, absolutely not. And if you are listening or thinking, nope, not going to do that, that is totally fine, right? It's just a matter of if, if thinking about your goal, like going back to our conversation about conflict, like what is your goal? Is your goal to feel more comfortable interacting with this person, to not cringe every time they walk by your office, right? And will some of those actions help? And, you know, research, there's some specific research that shows with insecure managers, the more you can sort of compliment them on something you genuinely believe they're good at, right? Like if they're terribly indecisive, do not say, I love how quickly you make decisions, <laughs> right? Like don't, <laughs> don't do that. But if you can find something they're genuinely good at, like you're really good at considering everyone's um, opinions, right? You're you do a great job framing discussions when in, when it's just our team, whatever it is, and sometimes that can sort of bring them down and sort of then they start to see you as an ally. And even if they continue to be insecure, they may not take out that insecurity on you um, specifically. So things could improve in in that way. Um, it's you know again, I don't love giving that advice. And there's more tips in that chapter in the book of other things you can do as well. I mean, one of them is showing them that you actually have something really valuable that they should appreciate, whether it's a you know depth of expertise or experience or specific skill or piece of knowledge, right? It's just demonstrating to them that they really need to rely on you um, to get their to do their job well. And I, I think from a practical perspective, is, is I think it's sort of sometimes trying to understand what is their motivation because 
Yes. It could be that they don't want to promote you because you're too valuable to them. So then it's figuring out, okay, if I want, yeah, what is my goal? Is it to get promoted? Is it to run my own team? Then you really need to think, how is that going to play out with a boss who's not really promoting me? And I think yeah. it's it's a tricky one because you can't yeah. sort of go into direct conflict with your boss. But on the other hand, just staying underneath him and being micromanaged and him say, or her, generally it's him who takes the credit, but I'm sure there are female <laughs> bosses who do that. But um, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a tricky situation and I don't think there's any straightforward answer, but in a way trying to, you know, read the runes, uh, figure out look, what's happened to other people in the department. Mm -hmm. And then unfortunately it could be that you have to leave in order to progress. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the key things also is to network in other parts of the yeah. organization, yeah, totally. right? Because yeah. sometimes sometimes if the, your insecure boss sees like, oh, that person in that department really thinks you're great, I keep hearing about that, yeah. right? They start to change their perspective on you. That also could feel more threatening to them, <laughs> depending on the level of their insecurity. But I do think having connections, like thinking about, I think it's a good exercise to be, to list what am I not getting from my boss and what am I getting from my boss, right? What's, what's a value and what do I wish I had? Then look at that list of what you wish you had. Is it possible to get that from a mentor? Is it possible to get that from another senior person in the organization? And if it's not, and there, and that list is long, I think you do have to consider leaving. I I never like to give the advice that you should quit because I think it's just not it's not yeah. it's just not possible for everyone in every situation. But I also think it's in some ways an underrated option because I think people often suffer way too long. And if you are you know have physical signs, physical mental signs of stress, yeah. you know working for an insecure boss can really be demotivating, demoralizing. You can, I think one of the, for the people I spoke to in, for that chapter, a lot of people said they started to question their own capabilities. And I think that's that when your boss's insecurity starts to make you insecure, I think that's a point of like, I got to do something about this. And it may be that you need to start looking at, at other organizations or even maybe other opportunities within that same company. Because that's a really good point. Because if you want to say it, uh, a situation where it's quite technical, uh, you you've got competence and it's far greater than your boss, and and that does happen in a lot of situations. Yeah. That yeah. it's the sort of more junior people who've risen up uh, and they've risen up quickly. They picked up a lot of these very specific technical knowledge, and maybe their mm -hmm. boss, um, he or she. Uh, is a good manager, but just is not good technically, um, then they will actually see you as a threat. Um, mm -hmm. And actually, it's worthwhile almost game planning the scenario and saying, okay, where is this going to end up? And if you are in a situation where you're not going to get the, 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 the credit or the promotion, uh, having an exit strategy is not a bad thing at all. I mean, clearly not overnight, but six months, no. nine months, a year, do plan mm -hmm. and, and figure out, look, how can I move or do something different? Yeah. In some ways you have to remember the grass always seems greener, right? <laughs> and Thank so you, yeah. chances are there's and your chances are there's gonna be some other problem there, if not the same problem. There's lots of insecure bosses everywhere. That's one thing I did learn in writing this chapter. But I do think that it's worth exactly what, as you said, just feel out your options. Sometimes even going through the process of interviewing and seeing what your value is in the market, sometimes you're like, oh, actually, you know what? I can deal with this, right? Because this is the best option for me right now. Or the other thing I really, when people 
consider quitting, which I think is always, it's worthwhile to do the mental exercise is to set a time period. So I'm three months, I'm good. If, if these three things have not changed or have not shifted or six months, these things, then I'm going to, then I'm going to start applying or during this three months, I'm going to start talking to recruiters and fixing up my resume and all of that. So that if I do decide at the end of three months, I'm ready to do it, right? Just anything so that you, the problem with a lot of these challenging relationships is we start to feel, especially when it's your boss, is that we don't feel a sense of agency. We don't feel like we have the ability to make the call. We feel really disempowered. And so anything you can do that puts you back in charge, that's really critical so that you just don't suffer the mental effects of feeling powerless. No, I, I just love that point, Amy, because actually one of the themes of this podcast is about empowerment and taking that control back, taking that agency back. You know, are you reading my mind? <laughs> so, yeah, like that. And the other one, uh, which comes up a lot, is a political operator. And mm. we've all seen those uh, mainly men who are just very sneaky about, you know, presenting a good face in, in the company, schmoozing with their bosses, but actually doing no work. And you're thinking, like, no how work. did that person, exactly, yeah. how yeah. did he get that promotion? It is That's so right. wrong. <laughs> I know. And actually, so- <laughs> you're making me think of this story. It's funny. I, I wouldn't have labeled this person a political operator but now that you say that, like, I remember there, there's this person, I'm not going to give too much detail, but <laughs> he was leaving this job and it was a pretty high job. Right. And I said, oh, gosh, you know, when I found out he was leaving, I was like, you know, how long are you taking to sort of wind down? Assuming. And he's like, oh, no, just a week. And I was like, oh, wow, you really have been doing nothing. Like, you can just extract yourself from this organization <laughs> in a week's time. And it's true. He had, he had somehow managed cre- to create this sort of image of someone who is doing a lot um, and by largely, and this is one of the main tools of a political operator, by taking credit for other people's work, right? And and not stealing credit, but like sort of noodling his way onto a team and then being like, look what our team did. And you're like, wait, what? You weren't even on that team. What happened? You know? Um, and so I think, and that's the, the political operator, credit stealing is number one, right? They're the the master of like, I'm going to do whatever it takes to further my career. And I do not care who sort of suffers as a result. Right. And they often even lie. And that, that can be really frustrating. Um, so yeah, I mean, they're not, it is not a fun character to deal with. Right. And they, they often do this also sort of bluster of talking about how important their role is or things they've done at their past jobs. Or right? I had a, I had a coaching client once who started every, it was driving his team bonkers like he would just start well in my last job and he would name the prestigious place he worked at before you know and and I finally when I started working with him I said and he did it to me too like in our coaching sessions and I finally pointed out I said I think I tell this story in the book I said you know every time you start talking you you proceed with this mention of your previous organization and he had no idea he was doing it no idea and as soon as he stopped doing that his relationships completely shifted because people, it was just the way, especially because he did it at the beginning of everything he said, it was like, people were like, ick, you know, and then, and then they're just sort of sitting there going, oh God, this guy, you know? Um, so it's sometimes it's just, I, I, I think most political operators are aware of what they're doing, but sometimes they're not. And I think you have to sort of keep that in mind. Um, so any, any sort of ideas how one can manage them, Amy? 
apart yeah, from getting I mean, out those emails quickly and saying it was me who did the work. <laughs> well, <laughs> sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was going to say the credit stealing is important. And I think sometimes if you're working with someone who's a political operator, it is critical at the beginning of a project to say, you know, I've been on projects before where it wasn't clear at the end who did what. And I just want to make sure how are we going to all make sure we get fair credit and then document that, right? And, you know, even things like uh, I see political operators all the time do a small part of a project and they're like, I'll present it to senior leadership. Right. And you're like, mm. so then, you know, make sure you make a slide that goes at the beginning of the presentation, not the end, that lists everyone who worked on the project. Right. Um, you know, and even you can find ways if they if they start to say, well, I did this and I did this. You can ask a question in that meeting that indicates you have deep knowledge about the project, too. Right that references the other people. But I think you really want to try to preempt it as much as possible. And then when they do it, you then sort of have to have the tough conversation of like, you used I the entire time in that meeting when all of us worked on this. I'm just curious why you did that, right? Yeah, and, and then leave and it. I, yeah, and I think that's a really interesting point because I think sometimes there are people who are very good at actually doing the work, but are not good at promoting themselves or marketing mm -hmm. themselves and then it's a guy or you know the who is very good at um interacting maybe with a senior leadership who says oh don't worry i'm good at presenting i'll present for the whole team and he essentially or she mm -hmm. takes credit for everything and i think then yeah. it's incumbent on you to actually when you're the project is going on make sure you tell people you and, and not in a slimy sort of way but i think you know the way the game is being played uh you either adapt and, and not in a slimy way but you do make sure that other people are aware look i'm doing this mm -hmm. amy did that it was great work and and maybe get a few allies in the team to help you share that knowledge because uh, the, it, within the organization because i think yeah. that whole self-promotion for some people, and I think especially, you know, if you're an introvert and you don't like doing that, it's hard. But I think yeah. if you don't do that, you're just not going to survive in with some sharks out there. I mean, what, what what do you think, Amy? Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I think one of the pieces of advice I give in the, in the chapter is also watch what they do, because if they're actually <laughs> effective at being a political <laughs> operator, I'm not saying you have to do, you can, you can further your career while bringing others with you, right? Like that is... That's very, that's not what the political operator yeah. does, but you can do that. So watch what they do. Do they ask, you know, do they ask a question right after the most senior person in the room does? So people pay attention, you know, what is it that they do? And is there a way for you to emulate some of that as long as it's not destructive to others, right? Like it is, you know, the what's the phrase? Like I blow your candle out so mine shines brighter, right? Yeah. Like we're not blowing anyone else's candles out. Like that's not the point. Light but more making, candles. <laughs> Exactly. Light more candles. And 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 I think there's there is evidence that shows that people who promote others actually get a boost, a reputational boost themselves, because now you look like someone who can identify talent, who shares credit. Right. So don't follow the political operators sort of nefarious tactics. But if there's ways to adapt some of what they do well and, and it could be, you know, like you said, sometimes they're like, well, I'll present because I'm good at presenting. And if they do that, say, mm -hmm. great. Okay, how can we make sure while you're presenting, we mm -hmm. all get credit for the work we put in, right? Then just put lay it on the table that this is something that's important to the team. 
Yeah, no, I, I just love that point. And, and actually also in the meetings, don't be afraid to speak up and actually almost try and bring up a very technical problem, which he or she may not be able to answer. Yeah. Because then yeah. you'll look a superstar um, and hopefully yeah. with the rest of your team and share it around. Yeah. No, lo- love yeah. all those points. There was, there was a project I worked on, actually. It was a, I was playing a very minor sort of role, but it was taking taking time. And I remember, they, it, and there was no reason, I was sort of like a consult, internal consultant to this project. And so there was no reason that I should have like gotten credit. And yet I was like, I think people should know that I did this, right? And so I just raised my hand in the meeting and said, hey, you know what you haven't talked about is the thing we did, blah, blah, blah. Could you share more about that? I think it'd be interesting to the rest of the group. All It was a very minor thing. It wasn't blustery. Like it was just reminding folks I'm also involved in this. And I think, and in no way took away from the work they did. And in fact, I was sort of, helping them present a really important part of the project. So I think there's ways to do it that are respectful, that um, are are strategic, but also help bring up others along with you. But, but I also think following on from that, Amy, I think sometimes there are people who are you know, very nice, they're very decent, um, and they're just not pushy. But they sometimes they have to just be a bit hard-nosed because otherwise the other person will just, you know, walk all over them, and you, and yeah, I think that's just not a fair situation to be in. But you do see that happen to a lot of people, good people, and that's just very mm-hmm. sad. Yeah, it is. It is, and I think if you can play a role in making sure those people in particular get credit, right? This isn't all about you, but mm-hmm. like, I think it's it just does wonders for both the culture of the team or the organization, but also truthfully for you, like for your reputation, people started, Oh, that's Amy really cares about fairness, right? Arsha really cares that people get credit. Like that's, those are good things to be known for. And and, and I think those people will also really like the fact that you've stood up for them because, you know, especially if you're slightly introverted, that, you know, being, um, getting involved in these fights is is not pleasant. But if they Mm -hmm. feel that they've got an ally who stepped up for them, you'll have a real ally for life and not just in the firm, but following on so yeah no love that um and and i I know we're sort of running slightly uh up against time but just very quickly just in terms of those nine principles for getting along Mm -hmm. i think you've mentioned some of them are there any others which you haven't mentioned which you'd like to just share with our listeners amy yeah and that's actually it's my favorite chapter in the book and and it's funny one of the things i want to do with the book is be give specific advice depending on the the patterns of behavior, but this chapter is sort of general advice for any any time you're dealing with a, someone who you, who pushes your buttons. One of the I, I'll mention two of the principles very quickly. One is that you need to experiment. So I wish I could tell you, you know, read chapter five about passive aggressive peer, do everything it says, and then you and your passive aggressive peer will have just this amazing relationship. Everything will shift. You'll never have an issue with them again not how it works in real life, right? Humans are messy, depends on the context, depends on the power dynamics, depends on the organizational culture. So instead, I really think of the tactics I offer as a menu that you sort of decide, okay, I'm going to try this one or these two. I'm going to experiment. I'm going to see, does it work in certain contexts or not in others? And then refresh your experiment, learn over time what works and what what doesn't. I think that's really important because I think most people would love a silver bullet, right? Yeah. Like this will fix it. And it's just not when we're dealing with humans, that's just not <laughs> the way it works. Um, the, the second one is I will mention, and, and I actually, I'm ready. We're doing a, a video. I'm doing a video with HBR about this topic. So it's really top of mind. 
but it's about gossip. And I think a lot of times gossip, it's our, it's our serious temptation when we're dealing with someone we don't like working with, like that political operator, like it is, you can be sure I walked out of that meeting when he told me he only needed one week to wind down work and told three people, can you believe what he, you know, terrible. It's, it's terrible, but it's, it's human nature. And I think we have to remember there's some positive things that come along with gossip, like the human connection, the bonding. There's even research that shows that if we gossip about someone's bad behavior, we create a norm that that behavior is not acceptable. So it actually encourages good behavior from others. Um, but for the most part, when it comes to dealing with difficult people, gossip just sort of cements your view of them because of confirmation bias, right? If I decide... Yeah. Harsh is passive aggressive. <laughs> I start telling everyone you're passive aggressive. That becomes self-confirming, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and so you really have to watch out for that. And it's just so it's I, I think so so often it's mean-spirited and causes more harm than it does good. So you just have to be really careful about how you choose to talk about the colleagues who you're who you're struggling with. Oh, brilliant. And anyway, I know we're sort of running to the end of our time. Uh, how can people sort of get in touch with you? And, um, you know, obviously I know you're on LinkedIn, you've got your website, uh, any other, and all of this will be in the show notes, but uh, yeah. how, how can people reach out to you? Sure. Website's the best place, you know, Amy E. Gallo or um, amyegallo.com or LinkedIn. Um, follow me there. I post multiple times a week, but, you know, whether I'm speaking or yeah. published a new article um, I also, for podcast listeners, check out the Women at Work podcast. It's my favorite of my portfolio career. It's my favorite thing to work on. I love it. We have an amazing team. My co-host, Amy Bernstein's has really brilliant and funny. And so, yeah, I'm all over the place. You can find me <laughs> if, if you want to. And and if you ever see Amy sort of randomly uh, having coffee, just go up to her and say hello. Please do. Please do. <laughs> She's Truth very my nice. <laughs> Thank you. And it, my favorite moments actually are in the bathroom at like a at a an event or someone. Someone will say, "Oh, I listened to your pot," and I'm like, "Oh, you know." I'm like, "It's just a fun." That to me is, you know, I love when people come up and either know my work or interested in my work or or just want to make a connection. So yes, please say hi if you see me in person. <laughs> very good. And 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 Amy, one final thing. Is there anybody you'd like to give a quick shout out? To? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I do have, I have, I have an Oscar speech prep just in case I'm not acting, but just in case, um, you know, I, I will actually, it's funny because we met at Thinkers 50. I just want to name two people who um, were also nominated for the talent award and um, were sort of my wing women at the event. Um, Ruchika Tulshian, who is an yeah. author. Yeah. She wrote inclusion yeah. on purpose. She yeah. has just been, you know, I edited an article she wrote years ago when we just hit the, you know, things just, we clearly had so much in common and, and really she's just been such a wonderful support um, for me. And then Madhuba Akinola, who, who who's a professor at Columbia and writes about stress and um, DEI as well. She was on a panel with Ruchika at Thinkers 50. And, you know, she she's um, sort of a new colleague of mine, but has just been really supportive. We spoke at the same event in Australia in the fall. And yeah, I just, I'm both of them are people who they're just a, they're examples of the the research that I quoted earlier on in terms of when you work with people who you really enjoy spending time with, it doesn't make it feel like work. And um, I just feel their support and I'm so excited about the brilliance that they're putting out in the world. 
What a fantastic. Well, um, Amy, it has been such a pleasure. Uh, it's such a shame that we didn't have more time, but that's mm-hmm. life. You're a, you're a busy person. Um, so, but <laughs> but thank, thank you, you know, for, for taking the time. Yes. Thank you to you <laughs> for saying hello um, and for following up. And I'm, I'm, this has been such a pleasure. I can't believe it's already been an hour. It went so fast. Thanks so much, Amy. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening and staying to the end. That was such a fun interview. If you'd like to listen to more episodes, please subscribe to the podcast, which is available on your favorite providers, and subscription is free. If you wish to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, please take a look at the show notes, which are available online. Thanks once again for listening. Wishing you success with your career. I hope you will join me again in the future.